Last night was fun because we got to answer a question together. What does God look like? What was our answer? Jesus. Jesus is what God looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God will always look like. The same yesterday and today and forever. He who was, Revelation says, he who is and he who is to come. The author and the finisher. Notice all of these start, middle, finishes the Bible keeps giving us because it's trying to show us that no matter what part of the Bible you open to, if you will look for him, Jesus is there. He might be standing in the shadows somewhere, but he is there. And if you can find him, then you can see an expression of the love of God. You can see an expression of who God is. And so tonight, I want to take us from the question... What's God look like? The answer is Jesus. And I want to insert Jesus and his life and his actions into this story of life that we have. Because when he puts on flesh, he becomes a man. He starts to live out a man's experience, a live out a humanity experience. And he relates an unseen God to a seen world. He takes an invisible God and he tries to make him visible. How do you make an invisible God visible? In the Old Testament, they made a golden cow. And Aaron thought, this is probably what God looks like. Where did he get that idea? Because that's what God looked like in all the other nations. Animals. And so he said, well, okay, well, maybe they're not wrong. Here's what God looks like. And we, knew it's, we know it's not. But when we get into the New Testament, God becomes flesh to show a visible world what an invisible God looks like. And the only way to do that is to show humanity what God would look like if he was a human. So how would he treat your neighbor? How would he treat the individual? What would his thoughts be about the stranger? And what would his thoughts be about Rome? What would his thoughts be about Pharisees and about the temple and about sacrifice and about the poor and about the leper? And whatever Jesus says is then a reflection of his father because he said, I and my father, I and my father are one. He says, I don't say anything unless I hear my father say it. I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. I lay this out tonight because it's information we need for where we're going. Please hear that again. I don't say anything I don't hear my father say first. I don't do anything I don't see my father do. This is why sometimes Jesus shocks us by walking into an open-air hospital like he does in the book of John and finding a man who's been paralyzed for 34 years. And at an open-air hospital, he doesn't heal the entire ER wing. He only heals one man. You would think if Jesus was going to walk into the hospital, he'd heal everybody. But he only heals one man. And maybe it's because that was the day and the moment and the hour when the Father wanted to heal that one man. I use that as a simple example in that Jesus is not some robot full of the Holy Ghost that's going out doing all the things we think look like God. Jesus is a man responding to the voice of his Father in the moment. What does the Father want to do right here in this moment? And what he wants to do for this man is probably going to be different than what he wants to do for this woman. And probably what he wants to do different from that man. And I'm going to listen uniquely to my Father. And when you do that, you don't have respect of persons. You don't tear people off and I'm going to treat him better because he can get me somewhere. I'm going to treat her better because she's got money. I'm going to... Jesus didn't walk in that realm because he was taking an invisible God and making him visible by showing humanity that how to treat the, the individual that's in front of you is to, to see them through the eyes of the Father and the Father, a Father of love. All right, so go with me to Hebrews chapter 1 because I want to share with you a great, what I think is a great place to start, particularly from where we left off last night, and that idea that when you want to see what God looks like, then you need to look at Jesus. So I want to begin you in the only book of the Bible that starts with the word God. And what does that matter? Well, it's going to be interesting when you see that it starts with the word God, and yet when you see the subject of the passage, 
we, we almost act as if these are separate things, and that's God and Jesus. And we'll talk about, we, we, we'll often talk about God as being here, maybe in Jesus being here. And I don't know what your theology was coming up, but I almost had a tiered system, like a hierarchy in heaven. God was at the top, Jesus was right under him, and then the Holy Ghost was the third tier. And the Holy Ghost kind of ran around the world doing the work of God, and Jesus did all the saving. And whenever the Holy Ghost brought people before God, full of sin or conviction, Jesus was the one that stepped in like some great attorney and had to tell God whether or not they had asked forgiveness. That was kind of how I preached the gospel. And I say, you're standing in front of holy God tonight, and, and if you've asked forgiveness, Jesus will step up and calm his father down. Because I had like a real mad God who was always in, on fire at people for sin, and Jesus was kind of the calm side of God. I just want to see if I'm alone in this. Maybe, maybe nobody else had this. I had God was full of fire and fury and smoke come out of his nostrils and he hated sin so bad. And then Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was a little softer. He was a little more tender. Jesus was calm. Jesus could come to his father and go, Dad, Jamie's already prayed about it. And the father would go, okay, I only accept Jamie because of Jesus. That's what I used to preach. I only accept Jamie because of Jesus. Then I started to actually read the Gospels. And Jesus thought that what he was doing was showing you what God looked like. How many of you know that if Jesus thought he was, he might have been? Jesus thought he was showing you what God looked like. And Jesus didn't take people in through what they did. He just took them in. And in taking them in, he was showing us the heartbeat of his father. So I want you to watch the connection. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Watch the connection between God and Jesus, all right? The only book that starts with the word God and takes off from there. Hebrews 1, 1. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, or as the old King James says, in sundry times and divers manners. And that's in different moments and in different ways. He spoke in time past by the fathers to the prophets. Time out. In the past, how did God talk to us? By the prophets, but not all the time, just from time to time in different ways by the prophets. Notice this. In times past, God spoke time to time in different ways, always by a prophet. So God did not speak all the time and the same way by one person. He spoke sometimes, not speak, speak, not speak, speak, not speak. That's various times, various ways. Sometimes he spoke through phenomenon. Sometimes he spoke through just judgment. Sometimes he spoke through the wind, through the fire, through the earthquake, through the still small voice. Are we in the book? This is God, various ways, various times, various manners, always through the prophets. You didn't get to hear from God if you weren't a prophet. Average Joe on the street, best thing you could hope for, get a lamb, go to the temple, offer it up as a sacrifice, see what the priest has to say, listen for the prophet of God. Okay? And if we stay with that, then we end up with a man-centric mentality and we can only hear from God at church and we got to have revival in order to hear from God because God only speaks in the spring revival and the summer revival and the Sunday morning service through brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so, but maybe not to me. So you really ought to pay attention to what God says. There. Can you see how we still have an old covenant mentality on how we hear from God? It's time to dispense of that. Why is it time to dispense from that? Because look at verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. How has God spoke to us now? By His Son. Who's His Son? Jesus. Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, 
who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to look again in verse 3, beginning at middle of the verse. He is the express image of His person. Here's two things to take from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. God's final word is Jesus. He used to speak from time to time in various ways through only the prophets, but now has spoken through Jesus. The God of talking once in a while, that's gone. God has spoken through Jesus. You want to hear what God sounds like? Listen to Jesus. You want to see what God looks like? Here's number two. God's express image, Jesus. What does God look like? Jesus. What does God sound like? Jesus. What is God saying in in this hour? Jesus. What is God saying about our future? Jesus. What is God saying about America? Jesus. What is God saying about our stuff? You're going to get the same answer all night because the same, the question lands in the same spot. It's not various manners in various ways, only through the prophets. It's Jesus all the time through anyone that will listen. What are we bragging about having Christ in us the hope of glory for if we have to wait for the prophet to tell us what Jesus says to us? There is no use for Christ to bother to go home with you if he doesn't have the ability to speak directly into your life. Why doesn't he just wait for you come Sunday? I mean, you're busy. you got a lot of stuff to do. You don't have time to go dragging Jesus around with you all the time unless, as disciples of Christ, we are to function the way Jesus did. Dad, what do you want to say? Dad, what do you want to do? I listen, and what I think of God, I find in Jesus. So if it doesn't look like Jesus and it doesn't act like Jesus and it doesn't love like Jesus, tear that idol down. Doesn't belong in your life. Doesn't belong in your reading. Doesn't belong in your psyche. Doesn't belong in your heart. It can do nothing but pull you away from the final word of God. God used to say it time to time, various ways, only through the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, Jesus, who is what God looks like. Now, God in the gospels, because if God is what Jesus is and Jesus is what God is, then wherever Jesus goes, what he touches, what he says, what he does, that's what God would do right there. And here's what's the amazing thing about watching Jesus is all of his encounters the kinds of people he's around, the stuff he bumps up against. And if you've ever wondered, boy, I wonder what God would do right here. And this is what's amazing because when people talk about what God would do, it's almost always smoke and fury and fire and thunder and lightning. People go, I wonder what God would do right here. Boy, I can tell you what God, we always get all, we always get all preachy like we're coming down from the mountain. And no one ever says, well, I know what God would do because that's, hey, let me show you what Jesus did. Let me show you what Jesus had to say. And I think, and I'm preaching to myself here, I think the reason why we're slow to do that is because a lot of us have what I said earlier. God's on fire, and Jesus is kind of the cool side of the pillow. You know, Jesus is kind of the calm him down. I think we ought to get rid of that. Jesus is what God looks like. They're not fighting one another. It's not as if God's got an agenda. Jesus went to the cross and paid for it. And so Jesus is sort of the, Jesus is like that stopgap between the wrath of God and what we could be. No, Jesus is the expression of the Father on the earth. Jesus is how God would respond. So let's put God in the Gospels. How do we do that? It's easy to find God in, in Exodus, God in Genesis, God in Leviticus, God in Psalms, God in Isaiah, because Jesus isn't in there. How many of you know the word Jesus doesn't show up in the Old Testament? Right. 
That's right. There's no Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, there's a Jesus in the Old Testament, but his name's not there. When he takes on the form of a, of a child and they name him Jesus of Nazareth, he walks through the earth, he begins to express God through the flesh. And then when we, if I were to say to you, where's God in Matthew or where's God in Mark or where's God in Luke or where's God in John, the correct answer, of course, would be wherever Jesus is. Whatever Jesus is doing, that's exactly where God is. And so I thought it'd be a fun journey for us to take just a few minutes and deal with one story from each gospel. I know that was a long intro to get us there, but I really wanted to set, up, set someone up that might not have heard last night or that will listen or hear this in the future and know exactly what we're trying to accomplish. Can't preach the whole gospels, can't talk them all the way through, won't even read the entire story. We'll read a little bitty slice of each one of them. But I wanna take you on a little journey into four slices of the life of Christ in which Jesus presents an image of the Father that is counter to what we bring to the table about what God looks like. And Jesus does it on purpose because he's combating, he's wrestling with that old view that we have of his dad. All right? And so I start at the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Because when Jesus unveils the Sermon on the Mount, what he's really doing is giving the principles of the kingdom of God on the earth. This is what it will look like when you follow me. This is how you'll respond. This is the truly blissful. I mean, it opens with blissful are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That word blessed is translated blissful are the poor in spirit. The world had never heard that before. Poor people were never celebrated. And Jesus' first sermon says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because that's the heart of Jesus. His is to present what had always been unaccessible to those at the lowest end of the totem pole. Jesus did it the opposite of the way the world thought it should be done. You should go to kings and generals and emperors and rule from the top down. Jesus went down into the mud and rules from the bottom up. His throne is a cross where a slain lamb reigns because he shows that victory doesn't come from stomping people. Victory comes from being stomped. That never gets an amen because that's not the American ideal of masculinity. Our idea of masculinity is if somebody hits you, hit them back really hard so they don't ever hit you again. Right? You can amen that. I mean, that's exactly how we think. If a guy hits me, I don't just hit him back. I hit him. Here's, we love to say stuff like this. If somebody hits us, you need to hit them back so hard they don't hit you again. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bless God. That's how it ought to be. Because if you hit them hard enough, they don't hit you again, then the next generation's not going to have to worry about getting hit. Although a, 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 a generation's worth of history tells us that's obviously not the case. Because what really happens is things seed down in people's hearts and they pass that on to their children. And they go, don't ever forget that somebody did this to us. You get them back. And so, oh, see how that cycle just goes round and round and round. And, round. and it started with Cain who kills his brother and, and the system of reciprocity begins. And in a world full of reciprocity... Israel goes wandering through the wilderness. I know I'm going the long way around to get to this. And we'll, when we hit Matthew, we'll land and we'll move. But the, Israel's wandering through the wilderness. They're going through a world full of violence and 
the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Moabites. And on every hand are all of these foreign armies. And God's raising Israel up in the middle of this journey. And all around them there's a system of reciprocity that says, if you hurt me, I'll kill you. And everybody in this room kind of agreed that that's sort of the way you take care of business. If a guy hits you, hit him so hard that he won't ever hit you again. And that's a tough way for the world to exist. And so when God gives Israel the law... He changes things up a little bit and he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, elbow for an elbow, knee for a knee. Somebody hurts your servant, you hurt theirs. Somebody, if you hurt a servant, you get to release them. And so he shrinks the system of reciprocity from poke If you hit a guy, he gets to knock you out so that you don't ever get to hit him again. And he makes it shot for shot. All right, Israel probably felt like they were getting cheated because the Philistines, if you hit a Philistine, they come burn your village down. Israel was told you only get to do to each other what each other does to you. So if Jamie hits you, you get to hit him back, but you don't get to hit him twice. And you go, ah, how am I going to keep Jamie from hitting me? You know, that, that's kind of like the, the natural response then is an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. How many of you know that's in the Bible? All right, that's in the book of Exodus, right? All right, go with me to the Sermon on the Mount. I want to meet you in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, and he says this in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I want to give a little time out right here, and I want to make sure that we understand that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is from Exodus chapter 21, right? And Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other one also. I want you to just think about what Jesus just did. Sometimes I think we miss the importance of the conversation. I want to walk you through it. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where have you heard it said? Exodus 21. But I say to you, no. Let me start over. I want you to imagine how you'd have felt if you were standing there that day. And you got your Bible up under your arm. You got your Old Testament up under your arm. I believe every word of this. Whatever it says, I stand on that rock. And you bring that to Jesus. And he goes, hey, what's the law say about what you're supposed to do if somebody hits you? And you go, well, Exodus 21 says, hit them back. And Jesus says, let me see that. And you hand it to him and he goes, but I say, no more. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the power of that moment? What's Jesus doing? Is he changing the rules? He's showing you what his daddy always loved like. You see, the father is not a reciprocity God. You do this to me, I do this to you. If God were a reciprocity God, you'd be dead. That's right. That's right. If God wanted reciprocity to rule the world, if everybody takes everyone's eye that takes their eye and everyone's hand that takes their hand, we end up in a world with one-handed and one-eyed people at best. At best. That's if we stop hitting each other. And we've shown that we're not really good on the playground of life. We don't stop hitting each other. 
we, if you take my eye, I'll take yours and then I'll probably take yours. And then I know you're probably going to take mine, but then I'll take your hand. So you can't take my other hand. And before long, we're just standing out there bleeding to death because that's humanity. That's what every culture does. That's how it's happened. So Jesus goes, no, here was my dad's real heart. What my father actually wants is for you to stop resisting the evil person. And when you're hit, turn the other cheek. Learn a life in which reciprocity and response is not your first instinct. If you want to follow me, he goes, you're going to watch a man who doesn't try to lord it over the people that don't like him, and I'll have the power to. We're going to go to the cross, and I'm going to have 10,000 legions of angels in the heavens that could pull me off the cross. But we're not coming off the cross because we don't win from a place of destruction. We win from the place of victimhood. When you get to Revelation, the Jesus that you see is a slain lamb sitting on the throne of God because the heart of God has always been to love that which is opposition to our heart. What's Jesus doing in Matthew? He's showing you, here's what my dad looks like. My dad doesn't want a world in which the eye is for the eye and the tooth is for the tooth. My dad wants a world in which we turn the cheek because it's the only hope we have. It's the only hope. You go, man, pastor, if we lived in a world where we turned the other cheek, we'd get crushed. And I say to you, welcome to the kingdom. We don't win from destroying. Our leader wins from victimhood. Why do you think in Revelation chapter 4 when you get to look into the heavens and there's an open door, when God introduces you to he who sits on the throne? Can I just slow down and say this real quick? This has been on my heart for so long. This, is, this right here, this next thing I'm about to tell you has been the most transformative revelation I've had in the last two years. Right? As if that matters. But this is fresh on my heart. In the book of Revelation, when God introduces the one who can open the seals, John cries because the seals can't be opened. Whatever the earth needs can't be given. No one's paid for it. And the angel taps John and goes, don't worry about it, don't cry. There is one who's worthy to open the seals. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? And in our houses, we got pictures of the lion. Right? And we got scriptures under it go, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns around. The Bible specifically gives you a dramatic moment mixed with comedy in Revelation 4. Dramatic because here's John crying and ooh, the lion can do it. Here comes the comedy. He turns around in Revelation chapter 4 to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the Bible says, and when he turned, he saw a lamb as if it were freshly slain. The comedy is, you think you're about to see a lion, but what you're really going to see is a slain lamb. Because the slain lamb is God's version of a lion. When God says the lion can open it, you go, yeah, show me the lion. Maybe the lion's the king of, the, of beasts. He's going to rip things' heads off. And God goes, okay, watch this. And it is a lamb. The, the Greek word there is as if it were freshly slain. The blood's still dripping from the lamb. It's an ugly sight. No one's attracted to that. We don't put that on our wall. No one has a poster at home that says the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's a lamb with blood all over it. But when John saw the lion, it looked like a lamb because God's victory doesn't come from roaring. God's victory comes from bleeding. How's the kingdom possibly going to win 
if we turn the other cheek? How's the kingdom possibly going to win if we, don't res- if we don't resist the evil person? It's going to win because the kingdom does- hasn't lost. There's no way Calvary loses because on the other side is a resurrection. Why are we excited about the resurrection in the church? Because the resurrection is pregnant with possibility. It means that no matter what happens to me, there's a tomorrow. Did you hear that? No matter what happens to me, there's a tomorrow. You may think you win, but you don't win because the man I follow always comes out of graves. You crush me, you stop me, you knock me down, it's all right. Three days, three nights. I always have a fresh life. I always have the possibility of a better tomorrow. All you can do is take my heartbeat and my breath. You cannot take my spot in the kingdom. And if we walked around the earth that way, we could resemble Jesus, who, by the way, is exactly what God looks like. So God's heart was not, hey, if they hit you, hit them back. That's all you get to do is hit them back. His heart was, I want you to learn that if they hit you, they hit me first. And when they hit you, they hit me. And if you can get this, this will help you. Because you got moments in your life where you go, where was God when that little girl was being raped? Where was God when that teenager died? Where was God when that old saint of the faith got cancer and we lost her? Where was God? And in some theologies, you'll go, well, God made it happen to teach us a lesson. The goodness of God need not kill people to teach lessons. Instead, here's what we might come up with. When I'm smitten, I can only turn the other cheek because he was just smitten with me. So when it was happening to that little girl, it was happening to Jesus. When it was happening to that young man, it was happening to Jesus. When it was happening to that old saint, it was happening to Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He knows what we're going through because he's going through it with us. Which is the only reason that we learn to turn the other cheek. To not resist because we watch our Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He offers his cheek to Judas Iscariot. And Judas kisses it and calls him friend. Jesus knows what's coming because Jesus told him in the upper room, go do what you do quickly. And yet he walks right into it. And we would call Jesus naive and weak. And yet from that place, he conquers the world. Because at Calvary, it introduces us to a resurrection. And resurrection introduces us to a new man on the earth. What's God look like in Matthew? He turns the other cheek. He receives whatever pain you receive. He takes it into himself so that you can know you are not alone. I've shared that with people who've had loss, lost children, lost loved ones, lost friends. go, why'd God let this happen to me? Oh, no. God let it happen to him. God let it happen to him. He was in there with him. No matter what furnace you go into, there he stands. That's why we need our lion to look like a slain lamb. 
because from the place of a slain lamb comes the victory. And then we roll into Mark. Now, there's a lot in each one of these gospels that we could spend time on. We roll into Mark, and I want to give you a healing moment in the life of Jesus. Not just a healing moment, but a forgiveness moment as well. Look at Mark chapter 2, if you would, for a moment. Mark chapter 2, Jesus is in Capernaum some days, and uh, he's been there for several days. There are people gathered together. And in verse number 3, they came to Jesus bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men, and they could not come near him because of the crowd. And they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. I want to point out two things in this story. One happens at the beginning of verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, and I want you to notice that Jesus is looking at the men who tore the hole in the roof to lower their friend into the room. There's not a shred of evidence in Mark chapter 2 that the paralytic man even knows what's happening. It isn't the paralytic man who shows faith in Jesus. It isn't the paralytic man who, who Jesus confronts uh, with healing. It's the four men who lower the paralytic men into the room. He says he solved their faith. And so this is a remarkable moment where God accepts the faith of someone else, accepts the faith of someone else on behalf of someone else, and he does it in the form of Jesus. And, then, and the last part is where Jesus looks at the paralytic man and said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And this is one of the more remarkable moments in the Gospels because Jesus does something that up until this moment we have not seen to be a possibility in the Bible. How many of you realize that the Old Testament legal system provided a blood sacrifice for sin? If you sin, you killed a bullock or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon or a turtle dove. And you could kill whichever one you could afford because grace was supposed to be commiserate with your ability. So if you didn't have much, you could offer up a pigeon. If you had a lot, you were supposed to offer up a bull. Interestingly enough, you didn't get more forgiveness if you were rich and had a bull than you did if you were poor and had a pigeon. It wasn't about the size of the offering. It was about the offering that you gave being commiserate with what you could give. By the way, when Mary brought baby Jesus, Jesus into the temple as a, as a, for, with a sacrifice, she brought a pigeon and a turtle dove, which tells you that the family of Christ didn't have a lot of money. And so they ended up on the low end of that financial totem pole. You didn't receive less of God's favor or less of God's grace, but you had to pay something out of pocket. Forgiveness of sins was something that was achieved by the shedding of blood. In fact, the Old Testament said without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And yet Jesus looks at the paralytic man and said, son... Thy sins be forgiven thee. And I want to ask you, what gave Jesus the right to do that? The young man didn't offer up a sacrifice. The young man didn't shed blood. The young man didn't go to temple. Let me give you another one. The young man didn't confess his sins. The young man didn't say the sinner's prayer. The young man didn't ask Jesus into his heart. The young man didn't even quote Bible. There's no evidence the young man ever even said a word. In fact, there's no evidence the young man even had any faith. Who was Jesus talking? This is why I pointed this out. He saw their faith. Whose faith? The four boys that lowered him through the roof. He saw their faith and confronted the young man and said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You want to see God in the Gospels? Don't ever tell God who he can forgive and how he forgives them. 
Don't put parameters on him. Don't put rules on him. Don't put structures on him. Jesus sees a guy laying on the floor and realizes that he's got sin and wants to offer forgiveness. He doesn't wait on the guy to do anything. He doesn't wait on the guy to say anything. I'm amazed at how much we believe we know who qualifies for the goodness and the forgiveness of God. And yet here's Jesus going, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. If you want to see what God looks like, forgive people. Forgive them before they ask. Forgive them while they wrong you. Forgive them when they don't ask. Forgive them when they don't want it. Forgive them when they don't believe in it. You want to look like Jesus? Stop waiting around to find out if people qualify for God's forgiveness or God's grace or God's love. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God will always look like. So God isn't waiting around for our approval on who He gets to forgive. They confronted Jesus and said, how dare you do this? And Jesus said, what would be easier for me to say you're forgiven of your sins or son, take up your bed and walk? He said, but so you'll know I have power to forgive sins. I have said it to him and will now say to him, son, take up your bed and walk. And the reason Jesus says this is because if I don't have the power on earth to forgive sins, I just blaspheme God. And there's no way this kid's getting up if I blaspheme God, because there's no way God would heal this kid if I just stood here and blasphemed by forgiving his sins. So let's see if this works. And I don't think Jesus crossed his fingers and closed his eyes and said, boy, I hope that dad will do this. Because he wasn't trying to change God's mind. He was showing us God's heart. And he knew that on the other side of forgiveness of sins, we get to walk. Did you hear that? He knew that if you want to change a man's walk, forgive him. That's God's heart. And so Jesus says, take up your bed. What happens? The young man takes up his bed and walks. I don't know if he shouted or thanked God. I don't know if he said, thank you for giving me my sins. I don't know what it was that he brought to the table. It seems as if whatever he had done had put him in the condition that he was in. Once Jesus released him from what he was done, the condition that he was in was over with. I think a lot of people in this world needed forgiveness of sins. And if they just had forgiveness of sins, they could have a fresh start. But we're withholding forgiveness of sins a lot of times because we don't know that people have earned it or we don't know that people deserve it or we don't know that people have come in our way. How can we possibly judge whether or not the Holy Spirit allow what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do? Jesus isn't changing God. Jesus is showing God so that you'll know. Take every bed and walk. Wow. What's he done in two Gospels? He's confronted the law and said there's a better way, which means God always had a better way, which means we get to deal with the fact that the law had contextual restraints around a people in a time and a place that were not necessarily the heart of God across time. So stop cherry picking the law every time you want to use something on someone to get them to think your way. Because that's exactly what Jesus came to show we cannot do. What else did we learn? We learned that forgiveness of sins is not something that happens through a theological construct. Certain set of prayers. Even got a weight on the blood. Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet and he still forgave the young man of his sins. It also ought to teach us that maybe it wasn't necessary for Jesus to shed blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. It was necessary for Jesus to shed blood so so we could see that we were forgiven of our sins. Because if we saw His blood shed, we might stop cutting ourselves. 
And by seeing his blood, we'd realize he can forgive. So don't ever again say to somebody, oh, you could, there could be no forgiveness of sins unless Jesus died on the cross. He just forgave the kid in Mark 2, and he hasn't died on the cross. So he's either outside of God's will, which is exactly what the Pharisees thought, or he's showing you the heart of God. And he said, if you want to know if it's God or not, this kid better walk. Because if he walks, then God approves of me forgiving sins without lambs, without bulls, without temples, without incense, without priests, without death. God doesn't need to die in order to forgive sins. God needs you to live in the forgiveness of sins. And yet, why does Christ die? Well, that would be a week's worth of sermons, but here's a quickie. He dies so that we can be freed from the guilt and quit hanging ourselves. Because Hebrews chapter 10 says it wasn't working offering lambs and bullocks because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin because every year that you offered them, you were reminded that you had sin. So God got rid of the every year thing so you'd stop being reminded you have sin. Because if you could see, because you don't buy it if you see a lamb die. You don't buy it if you see a bird die. You don't buy it if you see a bull die. I don't care if you do lay your hands on it and spend money on it. You don't buy it. But if you see a man die who didn't deserve to die and you find out that he died for you, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that. I'm supposed to die. And he goes, no, 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 Jamie. I'm doing this so that you'll stop killing yourself. I'm doing this so you'll stop hanging yourself. Yes. Can I give you another? This is a freebie. I won't charge you for this one. I don't charge you for any of them, in case you wondered. Jesus slides the bread and the wine across the table to his disciples at the Last Supper. You know who's sitting at that table? Judas Iscariot. How do we know? Because after the meal, Jesus says to him, go do what you do quickly. That means that Jesus shares communion with a guy who has betrayal in his heart. Jesus shares the blood and the wine. The, the wine and the bread, with a man who has betrayal in his heart, and Judas goes out and does it anyway, and then finds that he's guilty and hangs himself in Acts chapter 1. I like to say that the solution that Judas needed to his guilt was the bread and the wine inside of his belly. If he had just turned to the bread and the wine that had been freely offered to him, he wouldn't hang himself on his own guilt. we got people out here tonight hanging themselves on their own guilt, walking right into lives of sin and death not realizing that forgiveness is there. Guys, Jesus isn't trying to change God. Jesus is trying to change our ideas about God. Look at the book of Luke. Luke, go to the ninth chapter. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus is on his way to the cross. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? I want to stop before I read any further, and I want to ask you, where did they get the idea in Luke 9.54, to call down fire on people that don't accept the prophet of God. Where'd that idea come from? Elijah. Elijah. Is that in the Bible? Yep. yep. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the first chapter of 2 Kings where Elijah is confronted by a guest with 50 soldiers. And Elijah wants to prove to him that he's the man of God because, because he's the man of God. God didn't tell him to do it. 
He just wants to prove he's the man of God. And the 50 soldiers and the general come up the hill and God says, show them that I'm the man of, to show you that I'm the man of God, let fire come down and consume them. And he does it. And they send 50 more and he sends fire down on and kills them. And they send 50 more and they send fire down on and kill them. They finally stop sending men. They get the message. 153 dead people at the hands of Elijah with the fire falling. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he stops off at a village in Samaria and he tries to preach and no one says amen. No one likes Jesus. So Jesus just moves on. Don't you wish we could be more like Jesus? People don't like what I'm saying. I'm just going to move on. Jesus just is ready to move on. And his disciples, James and John, take offense. And they say, hey, this ain't right. These people ought to love you. They ought to accept you. You're the best we've ever seen. I'll tell you what, you want us to call down fire like Elijah did? That'll show them. Now, where'd they get it? They got it from the Old Testament, right? We'll, show, we'll call down fire like Elijah and show them. Luke chapter 9, verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. The Son of Man came to save them. And they went to another village. What's Jesus' response when they say, do you want us to call down fire? He goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I come to save men's lives. So I ask you this. Does God approve of fire falling on people and burning them up like a crispy critter? And Jesus' answer is, no. That was never what my dad wanted to do. My dad's not in the kill people business to get his point across. So I say to the church, stop waiting on God to kill people to get his point across. It's not his heart then. It's not his heart now. It's not his heart tomorrow. If Jesus Christ is what God looks like, then God didn't use fire to kill people then. God won't use fire to kill people now. God's not going to use fire to kill people in the future. How do I know? Because Jesus said so. You don't know what spirit it's of to ask God to send down fire. You go, okay, well, maybe it's just not time yet. Maybe we're supposed to send down fire later. And he goes, no, the Son of Man didn't come to bring fire on people. Three chapters later in Luke 12, he goes, the Son of Man came to bring fire on himself. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And until I'm baptized with it, my eyes are steadfastly set forth. And it is the fire that will baptize me. And that's what Calvary is. That's the And that's what the fire of the Holy Ghost does. The fire of the Holy Ghost is not so you'll run around the building and shout and fall out on the floor and then get up and go home the exact same person. All that other stuff's fine and dandy. But the fire of the Holy Spirit is to consume the sacrifice, which is Christ, and we watch that happen and then let Him consume whatever is wasted in us. And only in Christ is our judgment complete. The fire is not falling on people. The fire is falling on Jesus. The heart of God was never fire to fall on people. The heart of God was always fire to fall on Him. When the fire falls, it consumes the sacrifice. Here's, here's a, a bonus to that. Do you know where Elijah got that idea of the fire falling to kill? Because back in 1 Kings, he had had that showdown with the, with the counselors of Baal, the prophets of Baal, on Mount Carmel, remember? And they tried to sacrifice, and they all got mad and cut themselves and screamed, and Elijah stood there and made fun of them. And then it was Elijah's turn. He drenches the altar down with water because he's going to double down and go watch how God does it. And they, dub, they drench it with water, and he puts the sacrifice on, and he says, God, show them who's God. And fire comes down. And who does, what's the fire hit? Does it hit the prophets of Baal or does it hit the sacrifice? sacrifice? Why? Because that's God. Elijah said, show him who's God. Yes. Show him who's God. And God said, all right, I hit the sacrifice. 
When 2 Kings 1 rolls around, Elijah goes, show him I'm the man of God. Kill him. Watch what man does with fire versus what God does with fire. You give man fire, he'll burn the world up. You want to know why? Because he's living in the system of the world of reciprocity. You hit me, I'll hit you back twice as hard so we don't ever go through this again. Hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on them? That'll teach them, won't it? Jesus is like, you know it'll teach them, but they won't have a future. I'm not in the business of teaching lessons. I'm in the business of raising the dead. Yes, sir. You give man the fire, he'll burn the world up. You give man the fire, he'll create a power vacuum. He'll build little castles to himself. He'll have you walking after him, following after him, dressing his way, talking his way, living his way, praying his way, shouting his way, singing his way, doing his way. He has the fire of God and he's going to show you. It was never God's fire. It was man's fire. It was Nadab and Abihu and strange fire before God. There's a price to pay for it in that you create a chaos you cannot escape. And it will happen. And it won't be because God brought it in. It'll be because you've sown to the wind and reaped the whirlwind. It's because you don't get to play with the fire of the Holy Spirit and it not consume the sacrifice. Jesus will always come out as the slain lamb on the other side of a resurrection. Always. You want to know who's going to be standing at the end of all of this foolishness? Christ. You want to know who stands at the end of our next church wave? Christ. You want to know what our grandkids and our great-grandkids and our great-grandkids, if they still follow They're going to be following Jesus. Jesus will outlast the field. Jesus outlives them all. Christ is the one who wins in the end and it's not at the tip of a sword. It's being at the tip of the sword. Let me give you that other part. I told you a couple years ago this was the revelation that moved me. That was Part of that was the slain lamb. You know what the other part was? I always had Jesus with a sword. He was coming back on a white horse and he's swinging a sword, right? Man, can't, can't wait till Jesus comes back on his white horse. So I just tried to get into Revelation because I want to see what that looked like. You ready to get your world rocked? He has a sword all right, but it's never in his hand. Ever. The Bible says the sword, every time it shows Jesus with the sword, it's coming out of his mouth. And guess what's in his hand? The seven churches and the seven angels of the seven churches. One in one hand and one of you. Where's his children? In his hand. Where's his sword? In his mouth. The kings of the earth swing the sword in their hand and step on the, the children. The king of heaven keeps the sword in his mouth and holds his children. Because how Jesus wins is the word that comes out of his mouth. Not the sword that he swings in anger. What did God look like in Luke? You don't know what spirit you're of. My dad didn't come to fry people up. My dad came to save lives. Yeah. Oh, isn't that good news? Yeah. Yeah. Guys, I, I'm sorry. I get emotional. I start talking about Jesus. I think yes. about this man. I think about who I signed up to follow. See, I don't look at myself as a Christian as much as I look at myself as a disciple of yeah. Jesus. Christian holds a... I'm fine calling me a Christian. I'll call myself a Christian. But I think we've just theologic... We've almost made Christian political. Yes. We've, even, we've even decided what party is Christian yeah. in America. Yeah. Which is a joke in the annals of heaven. Because there's no such thing as a party with Christian in front of it or a political ideology with Christian in front of it. There's Jesus, King of the Kingdom. That's right. 
your first citizenship is to Christ. Who do you think you signed up to follow? Your first citizenship is to Christ. How Christ responds to the poor and the widow and the stranger and the outcast and the refugee and the immigrant and the hopeless and the helpless and the other race and the other side and the other person. What would Christ move? How would Christ love? And he was confronted with this his whole life because we've always struggled with who we have to love. Oh, who's my neighbor? A guy goes, what's the, what's the biggest command in the law? And Jesus goes, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Good job, Jesus. I, I couldn't believe that. I, read, I was reading that one day and a lawyer says to Jesus, good answer. Like, like Jesus was waiting on you to give him a good test score. Good answer. That is the right answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. But who's my neighbor? Here's a tough one, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Can you believe they ask? You know why they ask? Because that's exactly what we want to know. Because yes. the question is, who do I get to not love? Yes, come on. You got to love my neighbor as myself. Yes. Who's my neighbor? Because I don't really, I don't have a problem loving the dude at church. I don't have a problem loving my wife. I don't have a problem loving my kids. But there's a couple people I want you to give me permission to hold at arm's length. I don't have to really embrace them. I can like them, not love them. I can like them, not love them, right? Or I can love them, not like them. Which one is it, Lord? Who's my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know what we've done? We've hijacked that story so that it makes us feel good. Because we say anytime we help somebody, we are the Good Samaritan. I was a good Samaritan today. I helped this dude fix a flat tire. I'm just glad I was there so I could be the good Samaritan. The point of the story is the only guy that did it right was the guy you like the least because the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans. And so Jesus picked the one guy they had trouble loving and said, the neighbor will always be the last guy you wish he would be. And you could have heard a pin drop at the end of that story. Because you can hear a pin drop in a lot of churches. That's right. When you say, who's your neighbor? Pick the person you wish it wasn't, and they're the first one. Yeah. All right? So if you want a little thought experiment, try this. You could close your eyes right now and find the person, the political ideology, the thought process, the lifestyle, the clothing, the look, the attitude that you least want to embrace and help because they're so undeserving. And there's your good Samaritan. And Jesus isn't changing how God thinks about people. Jesus is showing you how God always thought about people. Did you know that what I'm saying to you, Jesus said it on his first public sermon and it almost got him killed. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty to them that are bruised. And he said, I know what you're thinking. Physician, heal thyself. He said, but I got news for you. He said, I want to ask you guys a question. Remember, he's in a Jewish synagogue. And he goes, were there not enough, leper were there not enough widows in Israel that God would send Elijah to the widow at Zarephath? He goes, were there not enough lepers in Judea that would cause God to heal Naaman, the Syrian of leprosy? And the Bible says, and when they heard those words, they were angry and rose up to stone him. And I, I read that here a while back and thought, why'd they get so mad? Did you hear what Jesus just did? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint me to touch the world and to proclaim the year of the Lord. Jubilee, yeah. jubilee, people go free. And he goes, by the way, you want to know who gets Jubilee? The same people God always gave Jubilee to. He goes, let me remind you. 
When Elijah went to a widow's house and spared her from the famine, he went to Zarephath. She's a Gentile, not a Jew. When Elisha healed a leper, he didn't heal a Jewish leper. He healed a, a Syrian general that had been killing Jews on the battlefield because the father isn't a respecter of who gets jubilee. Everybody gets jubilee. And it made them so mad that Jesus would come and declare jubilee to unworthy people. I don't think we've changed much in the church. We still get ticked off if we yes. think God's going to bless people that disagree with us. That's right. yes. Jesus isn't showing what God's trying to be like. He's showing you what God is. Yes. All right, final one, book of John. Don't turn there yet. Just hang out with me for a moment in my favorite Jesus story. Jesus sitting outside the temple just past dawn. He's probably spent the evening talking to his father because sometimes when you know there's a big decision to make, even when you don't know there's a big decision to make, listen for God in the moment of the quiet time because he'll prepare you because there's chaos coming around the corner. I think sometimes Jesus beat the son out of bed so he could go talk to the father. And he's doing that one morning when a rabbling group comes around the corner, dust flying, and a group of men with rocks in their hands are chasing a half-naked woman they just pulled out of bed committing adultery. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus. There's a reason the Bible says the sun had just come up. They've been watching her all night to catch her in the act. They pull her out of bed, probably throw her by her hair at the feet of Jesus. And they say in John chapter 8, Moses says that we should stone her to death. What do you say? And Jesus is confronted with the most difficult decision he has to make in his entire ministry. And here's how I know why. Because he doesn't answer. He just reaches down. And he doodles in the sand. And the Bible says they asked him again. They kept asking him. And he kept not answering them. Now for a long time, I tried to figure out what Jesus was writing. And one day the Holy Spirit just reminded me of what I do when I don't know what to do. Sometimes I hem-haw around or I stall a little bit. I maybe go take a, take a walk, take a run. Take a moment, just hear what the Lord has to say. And I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me that it's quite possible that in that moment, Jesus is confronted with the most difficult decision because the Mosaic law is very clear. You get caught in the act of breaking the seventh commandment, you get taken outside the city and stoned to death. And Jesus doodles in the sand, I think, to hear from his father because you better take your time before you sentence someone to the ultimate judgment. So Jesus doodles in the sand, looks back at the crowd and said, he without sin among you, you cast the first stone. Now listen, here's the point. I think I've earned your trust in two nights, so this next sentence won't throw you off. If you're a strict adherent to the Mosaic law, Jesus is wrong. The Mosaic law does not say he without sin among you cast the first stone. The Mosaic law lets everybody that wants to pick up a rock and bash her skull in. That's right. And Jesus says... He without sin among you, you have permission. If you can look in your heart and you know that there's nothing in you that you deserve to die for, you kill her. And from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their rocks. I think it's from the oldest to the youngest because the oldest have been around longer and they know better. They've been down the road before. They got a few skeletons in the closet. And they go, I don't want to live in a world where you die when you fail. 
and they drop the rock. Jesus has got to, he's got to walk softly here. Is this a biggie? So softly, he reaches down and doodles again. I think he's still talking to his father. Dad, it's a toughie. I mean, I just, I just basically went against Moses. It doesn't get any bigger than this. We just crossed a river. We can't come back from this. Woman, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Now go and sin no more. When did she confess her sins? When did she ask the sinner's prayer? When did she seek God? She was dragged by her hair out of the bed and thrown before Jesus and condemned to die rightfully under Moses' law. Jesus is not showing you what God would like to be like. Jesus is not showing you a new God. Jesus is showing you the God that always was, that always is, and that always shall be. The God that says, he without sin among you, you get to kill. But you better be sure. There's no coming back from this. You know what God looks like? He takes his time in the face of all your failures. He doodles in the sand. He doesn't give you all the answers all the time, but what he does give you is redemption. That's right. The gift of no condemnation and the power to take that gift and go and sin no more. So I don't know what that woman did with her life, but I know she's empowered because neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You say, Pastor Paul, what are we possibly supposed to do with a sermon like this? Because what this does is make us confront stuff that we've seen in the Old Testament. And then we get to Jesus and we go, well, which one's right? Great question. Jesus is always the final answer. God who in various times and in various ways has spoken us to us in time past through the prophets, hath now in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, who is the express image of God and the fullness of His person. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what God sounds like? You want to know what God says? Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Let Jesus be the final answer. Jesus said yes to God, so you get to say amen. 2 Corinthians 1 and 20. All of the promises of God are in Christ, and they are in Him, yes, and amen in us to the glory of God. In other words, Jesus said yes, all you got to do is say amen. So go find what Jesus says and amen it. Who do I have to love? Who Jesus loves. Say amen to that. Who do I have to forgive? Who Jesus forgives. Say amen to that. Who do I have to heal? Who Jesus heals. Say amen to that. Who do I have to feed? Who Jesus feed? Oh, I got 5,000 people here. Got a kid's little lunch. It's time to give bread and fish. I better go take inventory in the crowd. Make sure everybody qualifies. I mean, I wouldn't want to give out any kind of spiritual welfare or anything. People got to earn it because I'm not just going to feed anybody. No. Instead, takes the bread, takes the fish, holds it in front of his father in John 6 and says, Thank you, Dad. And hands it out. Literally, the Bible says, and Jesus broke it and said thanks and handed it to his disciples. He didn't even scream a prayer. He just said, Dad, we, you and I have already been talking about stuff like this. I woke up this morning looking for a moment to show people your heart. Here's my moment. Thank you for my moment. Face every day. Slap your feet on the floor. Father, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Christ. Jesus, show me a way to look like you today. Show me a way to love like you today. Show me a way to act like you today. And when it happens, all I'm going to do is do it and say thanks. I don't have to make a big deal of it. I don't have to start a ministry. I don't have to go make business cards. I don't have to go print up bumper stickers. I'm just going to do it and say thanks and watch the kingdom change the world. Yes. Yes.
That's Jesus. Yes. That's Jesus. Father, thank you tonight. Thank you tonight for the word. I've had so much fun talking about Jesus. I hope that we've shined a spotlight on Jesus in a way that turns the hearts of your people to you. We praise you. We lift you up. We thank you. God, show us not just, we, we, we've, we've looked at what you look like and we've seen it in Jesus. We've watched you move and act and work in the gospels. But now, Father, let us see you move and act and work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you, church.